Lord, we thank you so much for the sunshine. We thank you for your faithfulness and your holiness, that you make the unholy holy through your Son, that you will, the whole world, the whole earth will one day be filled with your glory and your holiness. And we can look forward to that and we can hope in it. And we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us that we are even here today studying your word. Please be with me as I teach. I pray that I would never misspeak or say anything inaccurate about your word, that this would be a time that we know you better, that we love you more, and that we leave changed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I hope that you all had a wonderful break. I was going to say a great Christmas. I realized we haven't seen you since Thanksgiving. So I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and refreshing time with your family. And just, you know, the change in pace in the holidays can be tiring, but it's also refreshing to just have the change of pace. But I am excited to be back with you. I'm excited to be back in the study and for all that God has for us as we continue our redemptive, the study of the redemptive history, the redemptive thread throughout the Bible. So I just wanted to refresh our memories in what we're doing in this Bible study. So this Bible study, the purpose of this particular two-year plan that we are doing is to see the Bible as one book, to see it as a whole. The, the Bible isn't 66 different books that are unrelated, but it's one book. I like to think of it with 66 chapters, and they all relate to each other, and they're all telling one story, and they're all interconnected. And, there's, and it's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's glory that one day is going to fill the earth and his redemption that he is accomplishing to make that happen. So if you remember the beginning of the year, if you, or maybe if you're new, you got these in your little welcome packet. If you don't, we'll get you one. But there's a bookmark in there, and the at the front of the bookmark is the purpose statement of this study. So I just thought it'd be helpful to remember our purpose and what we're trying to accomplish in the study. The purpose of the study of the Old Testament is to see God's master plan through the entirety of Scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole and points to the Messiah Jesus and his future kingdom. So we're going to look at God's master plan through the entirety of Scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole and points to the Messiah Jesus and to his future kingdom. And obviously, the point of any Bible study is not to just increase our knowledge, but to create to help us to know the Lord so that we would walk with him, we'd walk obediently to him, we would worship him more, and he'd be more reflected in our life. So that's what we're trying to do in the big picture of this study. That's why that we're not just doing a study in the book of Numbers and going, after this study we will be doing book studies that go a lot more in depth. But we wanted to have a context and an understanding of how all of those books fit together when we do those studies. We thought this would be a wonderful foundation to start out with. So as we begin, let's just go back and really quick review what we learned in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus to set us up for where we're at today in Numbers. We said that we're looking at God's master plan, and we are also looking at God's kingdom. And we defined God's kingdom the way that Graham's Goldworthy defined it. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. If you were with us last semester, you heard us say that over and over and over again. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And in Genesis 1, that's what we saw. We saw Adam and Eve, God's people, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they were co-ruling as he had ordained them to do um, under his rule and blessing because he said you will, he ruled them by his good word. He said you will not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God has established a perfect world where man is in perfect relationship with him, doing perfectly fulfilling work. And as man, his image bearers, does that, they reflect the glory of God. And then as they filled the earth, or should have filled the earth, as these perfect image bearers, the whole world is going to be filled with the glory of God. And then we said that that all kind of culminates in a high point on the Sabbath day, right? On the Sabbath, the day that God set apart, uh, uh, he, the day he made holy, the day he made sanctified, that we were to enter into 
perfect rest with him, where we glorify God doing what he's called us to do, we enjoy perfect fellowship and his perfect love, and we enter into this rest that he set apart on the seventh day with him. That's how God created creation. The thesis of creation is that his glory will fill the earth and his people will enjoy right relationship with him doing what he created them to do. But then we came to Genesis chapter 3, right? And the colossal collapse. Everything falls apart. Adam and Eve do not obey God's good word, and it all falls apart. But God gives us hope. He doesn't go to plan B. He doesn't say we have to start over. God is going to bring us back to Eden. He promises a serpent crusher. He promises one who will one day come, the seed of the woman, and will destroy the serpent and will bring us back to Eden. And God is still, his plan is still that the whole world will one day be filled with his glory. And so now we're looking, how, when is the serpent crusher coming? How is he going to be redeemed? What, and that's what Genesis is about, right? We're going to understand how is redemption going to be accomplished. It's first promised in Genesis 3.15, but then it's further developed in the Abrahamic covenant. And if you remember from last semester, when I say the Abrahamic covenant, you think LSB, land, seed, blessing. The three main points of the Abrahamic covenant. The, the he's going to take the people into the land. And once they're in the land, he is going to, not before, well, the land's one part, and then he's also going to make them as many, right, the seed, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. But that seed had a dual meaning. Not only are there going to be a multitude of people, but there's one particular seed who's going to come. That seed takes us back to Genesis 3.15. The serpent crusher is going to come. He's going to come through Abraham's line. So the serpent crusher is now coming through Abraham's line, and so we now know that the hope of the world is resting in the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So he's coming through there. Then we want, so we want to know more about him. And as the Abrahamic covenant gets developed, we learn that he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, that he is going to be a king who rules forever. We learn that in Genesis 49, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, but he will rule forever. He will establish peace on the earth. And we saw in Genesis 49 that beautiful picture of he will turn curse to blessing. He will bring us back to Eden. That brings us to the book, well, and then also, sorry, Genesis also taught us that, that God has certain values that he wants this nation that's going to come from Abraham to display to the world. They are supposed to be his ambassadors, if you would, to the world to declare who God is and to tell the world who God is. Because God's plan has always been for the world and for the nations, not just for Israel. And so they would be the ones who are to let the world know about God's plan of redemption. And so they are supposed to display the values of faith, of God's presence, that God will fight for them. That's what Israel means, God fights for you, and that God will turn evil to good. He will turn the curse to blessing. That brought us to Exodus, where God showed his mighty hand that he is a God who can redeem from slavery. He is a God who can take you out of slavery and can take you to his promises, and he also showed us that beautiful picture of substitutionary death in the Passover, that there can be one who dies in the place of another. And so those pictures begin to start foreshadowing where redemptive history is going. And then that took us to the book of Leviticus, which is our last lesson before we left, where God defines holiness. And he shows that, I remember I quoted Dr. Um, Chow, who says that God's version of good is perfect, God's version of good is holy, and that we must be holy. If you want to go into the land, you have to be holy. If you want to be in the presence of the Lord, you have to be holy. Holiness is what gets us back to Eden. And we defined God's holiness. I used A.W. Pink's definition of holiness, saying that of the holiness, this may be said to be the transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through all the rest and casts lusters upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. And God's love can be described as holy. God's justice can be described as holy. God is a holy God. It is the attribute of attributes. 
And so in Leviticus, we saw that we had to be holy, and God defines it. You have to be holy in your worship, holy in your time, holy in your preferences, holy in your relationships, holy in all the minutia of life. And that sets us up for numbers, because in numbers, God displays his holiness. So he defined his holiness in Leviticus, and in numbers, God's holiness is going to be displayed, and it's going to be taught to Israel and to the world. So I know that was like drinking from the fire hydrant, <laughs> but that for most of us who are here, hopefully that's all review. And if you weren't here with us before, we can catch you up. Don't let that make you nervous. You can listen to the lectures we've had before, or I'd be happy to meet with you and explain verse by verse where we how we got there. So that was our review of what we learned last semester. That brings us to November, and from November to now. And so here's our purpose statement for today as we go through our lection, lecture. Here's what we need to just, if you, if you leave understanding this, it will be a successful lecture. That in numbers, God is going to refine the nation of Israel and display and teach his holiness to Israel and the world. That in the book of Numbers, God is going to refine the nation and display and teach his holiness to Israel and the world. One more time. Sorry, we were going to try to have PowerPoint, but it's not working. God refines the nation and displays and teaches his holiness to Israel and to the world. And I'm going to just have a two-point outline. Those are going to be a fair amount of subpoints, because the book of Numbers is really structured around the two censuses that are taken. So the census in chapter 1 is going to be our first point, the rebellious generation. And then in chapter 26, that's going to be our second point, the refined or the holy generation. is going to be the second, the new generation. And as we look at the... Um, the rebellious generation, we're going to first look at how they set out, how God establishes them to go in the land, and then we're going to look at their rebellions. So it's kind of the two main categories we'll look at underneath that, just so that you kind of have a roadmap for where we're going today. Because there's a lot of details, and I don't want you guys to get lost. So, number one, chapter one in Numbers, if you could turn there, we are going to look at the rebellious generation. So God has redeemed Israel, he's taken them into the land, he's made them a mighty nation, he's def- taught them what holiness is, he's given them the Mosaic Covenant, and now what do we need to do? We need to get to the land. We need to get into the land we promised. That's what the Abrahamic Covenant starts with, right? Land, seed, blessing. And so in Numbers 1, God is getting all of the men ready to go to battle. They are marching to holy war. So he's taking a census of his warriors, and that's what's happening in chapter 1. And then God is also teaching them that how they're going to go into the promised land has to be holy. And so we're going to see all the structures and all the, instru- and all the things he's doing in chapters 1 through 11 are to display and to teach his holiness. So we see it first in how they're arranged. And hopefully everyone saw a handout today in their lesson of how the camp's arranged. The tabernacle is in the middle, the Levites surround the tabernacle, and then all the tribes are in a circle around them. And I'm going to borrow this illustration again from Dr. Chow. We're going to pretend today that we are spies. And we are spies from the neighboring nations because that's what they did. We know from... Um, Rahab, that the spies came and gave reports of what Israel was doing. And so the world is watching Israel, and if you were a spy and you were looking at Israel, what would you see? What would you learn about their God, and what would you learn about them as you're observing all the things Israel's requiring them to do? And one of the things you would first notice, because this was very common in the ancient Near East, whenever you went to battle, you put the king in the middle. The king was in the most protected position, the king was in the central position, and as you marched in, he would always be in the middle. So when they look at these people marching to war, Who's in the middle? The tabernacle's in the middle where God dwells. God is Israel's king. God is what's most important in Israel, and all the nations would have known that just simply from the camp formation. So they would see and know God is what's most important, and God is their king, and their God, he's with them. That's not what these other nations have with their false gods. The God of Israel, he's with them. 
right in the middle of their camp, and everything is about him. They would also see in chapters 3 that the Levites are divided into three categories for how they're going to take care of the tabernacle, right? God is dwelling in the tabernacle, and so there is tabernacle set up and tear down. And it's not something that's due to haphazard. It's not something that, oh, did somebody forget to bring along the, you know, the basin? Did somebody forget that? No. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a job. It's done efficiently. It's done in order. These sons, they take care of the tent poles. These sons take care of all the coverings. These sons of Aaron, they take care of all the carrying the ark and all the special vessels. And it must be done orderly, and it is a serious job. If the people carrying the ark even saw the ark under the covering, they would die. You carry the ark the wrong way, you die. Because God is holy, and we approach him the way he says he's to be approached. And all the nations, us watching sides, that's what we see. That there's this God who's with Israel, and he's a God of order. And he is a God who is holy in how they deal with things. And these people must really revere God, because look how they take care of the tabernacle. And so that's chapter 3 and, um, and 4. And that brings us into chapter 5. The other thing that if we're spying on Israel and we see is that you can't be in the presence of God if you're unclean. Remember in Leviticus, all the ways you could be unclean. I remember thinking, could you ever be clean when we were going through all of the lists of the ways you'd be unclean? And when you're unclean, you have to leave the camp. So again, if we're looking through our binoculars, we're seeing these hordes of people out of the camp and into the camp and out of the camp and into the camp. And what do we know? You can't be in the presence of God unclean uncleanness, lack of holiness, you can't be in the presence of God that way. So just observing all the ways that God is setting this up, that he's a God of order, that he is a God that demands holiness of his people, that you can't be in his presence unless you're holy. And that's what the Nazarite vow is about too. It's the, it shows the total dedication that holiness requires. That holiness requires total dedication. You can't just be holy on Sundays, or in their case, on the Sabbath, right? Holiness requires total dedication. That doesn't mean that to be holy, you had to be a Nazarite. But again, the law in Numbers is in the middle of the law, and the things God is setting up, they're pictures that teach, right? Actions teach better than words. It's a picture that teaches us. This is a picture of the total dedication of holiness. This is what God is requiring. So with all the nations, remember our big, what's our purpose statement? That God is teaching the nations and Israel his holiness, he's displaying and teaching his holiness, and he's going to refine them. So we see all that God is doing, and again, God is in the middle. God is central. In the book, What Did the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About?, Andrew Smutzer says this about God's presence with Israel. One of God's greatest gifts to his people is his presence, for it alone can give the greatest satisfaction for the longest time. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. What a gift that the one with universal authority is the one with his own, even to the end. This is what Israel has. They have their God with him. What does Israel mean? God fights for us. They're going to battle. God is with them. God fights for them. He is a holy God. So, that brings us quickly to chapter 11. The, the other chapters just continue to detail um, God's requirements for the nation and for how they're going to deal with the tabernacle. And now we're going to be heading to the land, and now we're going to deal with a series of rebellions. It's just going to be rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, showing that this generation, and this brings us to the refining that God's going to do with the nation. We're not quite to the wilderness yet, but God is going to use the wilderness to refine his people, and God is going to judge all these rebellions 
to show he is holy. So that begins in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we see that people want meat. And one of the first things that struck me, and it struck me before, but it struck me anew and in a harder way this time, is they are with God. They are going to the promised land to get the covenant. They are in, they have just been redeemed from horrific slavery and seen how powerful their God really is. And this is the beginning of the trip. Like sometimes I think when they complain about meat, oh, they've been in the wilderness a really long time. No, they haven't. This is the beginning of the trip. And they want meat. And you know what? Their God is a good God. They could have asked for meat and he would have given them meat, right? They could have asked the right way. But no, they're just going to complain. They complain to the point that they want to go back to Egypt. And so sometimes I think it's just, you, know, you think, okay, for people to have this kind of rebellion, they must be like in Nazi German Nazi concentration camps. They must be POWs. It must be like the worst situation that you could imagine horribly. And these people are not. They're in a wonderful situation. And it just reminded me about my life. I have never wondered, not only if I would eat one day, but if I would eat three times a day. I have never wondered if I was going to miss a meal. And if I did, it was because I was sick or something. It wasn't because there wasn't food. And I've never wondered if I would be clothed, and I have never wondered if I would have a roof over my head. And I complain every day. I complain every day. There's something every day that gets under my skin. And just how serious we're going to see all of these, because they never really have some big complaint. They're impatient, they're hungry, they're thirsty. That's what, that's what they rebel against. And it reminded me of Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins and how we can think, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prostitute. I just complain. That's not how God sees it, right? That's not how he sees it. He sees it as sin. It's a violation of his holiness. And we're going to see how seriously he's going to judge it and how seriously he's going to make that clear to all the watching nations. You complain for meat, I'll give you what you want. You're going to have meat coming out of your nostrils. You're going to have so much meat, you're going to die by it. And they do. Many die. Look in um, chapter 11, verse 18. It says, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat it. You shall not eat it just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? This complaining is a rejection of God. But also note something very unique that happens in verse 25. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, him being Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, and they continued doing so. If you flip over to verse 29, a couple men besides the 70 elders who were picked started prophesying. And people were really bent out of shape about this. And they come to Moses and say, these other two guys, they're prophesying. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, and Moses and the elders returned to the camp. Moses is understanding something here. We need, the nation needs holiness, and God sends his spirit. God sends his spirit to help with the problems. We cannot be holy apart from the spirit of the Lord. We cannot be holy in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. And Moses says, would that everyone had the Holy Spirit, right? What's the answer to our problem? That everyone would have the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to our next rebellion in 13 and 14. And we are very familiar with the story of the spies going into the land. And the land's everything that God promised. It's bountiful. It is it's an amazing land, right? They had to have a pole and two men carrying the cluster of grapes out of it. But it's also a land that's fortified. It's also a land that's occupied and has 
you know, they said the giants of the land were like grasshoppers between them. And so the people are afraid. And what do they say in chapter 14, verse 3? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then in verse 11, God says, how long will they not believe in me? What is their sin? Why are they afraid? They don't believe in God. And in verse um, 33, he says, you shall suffer for your faithlessness. What was the first attribute, first value that God taught Israel in Genesis? You are to be a nation of faith. And they do not believe in their God, who has saved them with a mighty hand, and they are faithless. And they're saying, we're going to die by the sword. But who fights for them, remember? God fights for them. That's what their very name means. This lack of faith is a complete rejection of the Abrahamic covenant. It's remind us of Esau. Remember when Esau despised his birthright and we said, why is that such a big deal? Because he's despising the covenant promises. The hope of the world and salvation comes through the Abrahamic covenant. And they're saying, we don't want it. We'd rather be slaves. We don't want the land. We don't want the promises. We don't want you, God. We'd rather have slavery in Egypt. This is the highest form of rejection and a complete lack of faith. And God gives them what they want. They didn't want to go in the land, and they don't, do they? No, they don't go in the land. You don't want to go in the land? You're not going in the land? And God proves that every single one of their complaints isn't true. Those children who you said were going to fall by the sword, they will conquer in the land. They're going to conquer the land. They're going to get the land. They're not going to fall by the sword. The nations are going to fall by their sword. And so God makes their points. He may gives them what they want, but tells them that their points aren't going to be true. And this is the, one of the high pictures of how holy is God. He's going to execute an entire generation. All of you are going to die in the wilderness. You are all under a sentence of death. You will be executed. My people don't get a pass when it comes to God's holiness. The nations around me are going to see that you, my people violate my holiness. He's going to execute them. Everyone 20 and up, you're not going in the land. That's how holy God is. But look at verse 1 in chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land. God is faithful. It's not if you come into the land. It's not if the next generation obeys. It's when. God is going to raise up a generation who will go into the land. God is going to keep his promises, but to go into the land, you have to be a holy people. Before we go totally away from the story, I want to pull two more things out of chapter 14. There are two men, right, who believe, who plead with the Lord, Joshua and Caleb, and they have faith. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. How does the congregation respond in verse 10? Then the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's how great their unbelief is. But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord says, right, that Joshua and Caleb, they will live and they will enter the land. And in verse 21, what is the thesis of creation? What is the thesis that God is doing? But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God's plan is not going to be thwarted even by this rebellious generation. So we see that God is going to display and teach his holiness to Israel and the world, and God is going to refine the nation. And now the refining will become clearer because who is he really refining now? This older generation is being wiped out. He's refining the younger generation that will go into the land. Well, this brings us to Korah's rebellion. And why did Korah rebel, right? Korah, they're the ones who get to carry the Ark of the Tabernacle. But as we've covered in the lesson, 
all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And so the Korites, they're not priests. They get to carry the ark, they get a special job, but they're not priests. And so why do they rebel? Because they want to be priests. In chapter 16, verse 8, if you want to read with me, it says, Here now, you son Moses said to Korah, Here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near to him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Why are they rebelling? They're rebelling because they want more than God has given they want more than what God has given. God has said, this is your job. This is what I've raised you up for. This is what I've appointed you for. And that's not good enough for them. How often do we do that? It's, you know, the snare of compare. Why is my life harder than that person's life? Why do they get to serve in this position? I want to serve in this position. That's my giftedness. I'd be way better at that job than that person would. Or why does God answer that person's prayer and not my prayer? It's the snare of compare, right? God has ordained what he wants for each of our lives, and he's done it perfectly, and he's done it for his purposes that are often beyond ours. But Psalm 84:11, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. There's nothing good that his sons or daughters need that they don't have. Nothing. So where do we, where are we like Korah? Where do we want more than God has given us? Well, again, God judges how holy is God. God, the earth swallows up these people. And if you're a watching spy, that would have been quite the spectacle to see that day. How holy is God? You will not rebel against his priesthood. You will not re rebel against his order. And this is, again, they're in the wilderness. This is teaching. This is refining that younger generation. Well, that brings us to the rebellion at Meribah. And at Meribah, this is, this is the hardest one for me, right? God says, the people are complaining because they're thirsty, again, and God says to Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brothers, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give it to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not, what did they not do? You did not believe in me. Didn't have faith. To uphold me as what? As holy in the eyes of the people. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through him he showed himself holy. I remember distinctly the first time I was taught this in Sunday school where I was sitting upstairs in Grace Baptist in Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> I was, and I just remember being like, you can't do that to Moses. He has put up with these people for almost 40 years. You cannot do that. That's not fair. I remember being so upset. I remember talking to my Sunday school teacher, right after, teacher afterward, being like, how can this happen? And then I remember when Moses dies, looking at the promised land, just crying. And I wasn't a little girl who cried. I just remember being like, this is so unfair. And it took almost probably the studying it here for me to realize that it was very fair. God is holy and it's my misunderstanding of his holiness that makes me think it's unfair. It's my trying to bring God down to my level that makes this unfair. Leaders are held to a higher standard. You know who knew that God was holy? Moses did. Moses talked to God face to face. Moses was his leader. Moses has been seeing all these judgments too. Moses, who much has been given, much 
is required. And God has to be seen as holy. And it's our wrong understanding of holiness that causes us to say, God's unfair. And it was, it's our immaturity that causes us to not understand and see how big this is. And it also shows that God's not a respecter of persons. He will judge a whole generation. He will judge his people. He will judge his prophet that there is none like after Moses until Jesus, right? You have to be holy. There aren't exceptions to this rule. Well, that brings us to chapter 21 and the rebellion of their impatience. They set out from Mount Hor in verse 4 on the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the people became impatient. Again, water, food, impatience. Like they're not in some great, horrible situation, and they just, they just are impatient. They speak against God. Why have you brought us out of slavery? Why do we have worthless food and no water? And the Lord sends fiery serpents among them to bite the people. And then Moses intercedes, and then they say, make a bronze serpent and lift it up, and all those who look will live. And that word live, it's a key word, a key verb in Hebrew that takes us right back to chapter 14 where it says that, I think it's 14, maybe 13, that Jacob and the Caleb and Joshua will live. When it says they will live, they live because they believe, they live because they have faith. This is that same verb saying those people who look, they have faith. And this is that younger generation starting to change, starting to be refined, starting to have faith. You have faith and you live. What does Jesus say in John 3 to Nicodemus? He says that the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when we look at the Son and we trust in who he is and we have faith in him, what do we get? We get eternal life. And here's the beginning of that picture. A faith equals life. Faith equals living. So we see the generation is starting to change, and we also see, if you just even look at your titles in those chapters, Arad is destroyed, the king of Sion is defeated, the king of Og, Og is defeated, and that brings us to Balak, and he is understanding, you can't defeat Israel. And he's like, okay, if I can't beat him in battle, maybe I can beat him spiritually. So he brings in Balaam. You can curse him. I see I can't beat him in battle, but I don't want to be wiped out, so you curse them. We'll make this a spiritual battle, Okay. And Balak was a very famous man. You can go to Jordan, and archaeologists have found texts that uh, refer to Balaam and talk about Balaam. He was well-known. Why does God pick a well-known false prophet to bless Israel? Because now Balaam is going to announce, and because Balaam is so well-known, because he's this, in a sense, international figure, that he is going to get the message to everybody. Everyone's going to know what Balaam said. Everybody, like maybe the wise men, right? We'll get there in a minute. Everyone's going to know what Balaam says. It's that, he's gonna, he, God has told Israel, God has told Abraham, now all these oracles, what do they repeat? They repeat the Abrahamic covenant. We know that, Israel knows it. Now the world knows. This is God's plan. This is God's judgment. This is what God is going to do. So we see the four oracles, and we're just going to summarize them. The first oracle in chapter 23, in verse 19, oh, that's, sorry, that's the second one. In chapter 23, verse Eight, it says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? What does that mean? It means Israel's going to be blessed. Nothing can stop the blessing of Israel, just like the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who bless you. You're going to be a multitude. Remember, being fruitful and multiply is always the sign in the Old Testament of blessing. Israel's going to be blessed. Second oracle, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You can't change what I'm going to do with Israel. 
because God doesn't change. The character of God will never change. Therefore, you can never do anything to this promise. God is not a man. He's not like your gods. He is God, and he will not change. And then we learn that all of these promises revolve around a king. In the third oracle, we see in verse 7, it's toward the end, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. We also see in verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of, of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. That scepter takes us back to Judah, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah, crushing the forehead of Moab. That takes us back to Genesis 3.15. This is the serpent crusher. And if we weren't clear, verse 19, and one shall come from Jacob and shall exercise dominion. And again, we looked at that word when we were in Genesis 1. He who has dominion, he's the second Adam. This is what God is doing with Israel, and God doesn't change his mind. Nothing can thwart his plans. And a star, a star is going to announce him, right? A little bit more expanding of this prophecy. And Daniel, in his book, he takes that imagery of a star and he expands it. And Daniel was a wise man in Babylon who I'm sure talked and discussed this with other wise men. And so while I cannot say definitively, many people believe that because of the international impact of Balaam and because these things were written down, because the Daniel took this imagery, that wise men would be able to connect these texts and be familiar with them, and that's how the wise men knew to go to Bethlehem. Again, not saying that's in scripture, but that is what many scholars do connect and believe. Um, so Balaam's oracles, now the whole world knows this is God's plan. And that brings us to chapter 25. So what's God doing? He is refining the nation. He's displaying and teaching his holiness to Israel and the world. He's announced his plan. And Balaam's like, Balaam's still a false, false prophet, right? He obeyed God because God said, you have to say this. But he got paid to try to overturn Israel. So he has a, he has a, he has a plan B. God's not going to go against Israel. You can't defeat Israel's God. But if Israel rebels, what have we just seen from all these rebellions? God will judge Israel. So get Israel to rebel. That's how you defeat Israel. So the Moabite women come in, and they seduce the men, and they worship Baal of Peor, and this is the height of apostasy. This is the last rebellion of the old generation. This is their final act of apostasy, and basically, it's all, here's their heart on full display. Here's the human heart full of apostasy on display. We have rejected the covenant, we've rejected God, and now we're, we're going to Baal. Like we, this is full apostasy. And how does God satisfy his wrath against that does god say moses here's the sacrifice that you offer no he doesn't look in chapter 25 verse 4 and the lord said to moses take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the lord that the fierce anger of the lord may turn away from israel and moses said to the judges of israel each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to baal of peor in the ancient near east Dr. Chow says this was the most severe and serious punishment. It exceeded all executions, not only because it included a painful death, but because it carried shame. It includes the full gamut of humiliation, wrath, and justice. They publicly bear the shame before the nation. Remember how we've talked so much about corporate solidarity? How what happened to Adam, he had corporate solidarity with all of the race. How David had corporate solidarity with Israel when he fought Goliath. These leaders have corporate solidarity with the nation. They represent the nation. They are the people, so they are dying for the people. They publicly bear the shame before the nation on behalf of the nation. This is all about God's wrath. There is one way to deal with apostasy, the apostasy of the human heart. You get the leaders and you execute them in a way that displays 
all of God's wrath against them in a public display of his justice. And if we're thinking ahead, what does this kind of sound like? A public, shameful, for the people execution. This is setting up and giving us a picture of the cross. The cross requires sacrifice, but it also requires that the wrath of God be poured out and that the wrath of God be justified and the wrath of God be satisfied. Dr. Chow continues, God is showing that this is the way you satisfy justice. God's wrath needs to be satisfied, and it's more than just sacrifice. And so we see this picture of how holy God is and what it takes to satisfy the wrath of God. But there is a shining star in this very bleak chapter, and it's Phineas, right? And Phineas sees this man, this, this punishment's going on. These, uh, these people are being hung, and there's a plague, and this guy is still so brazen that he's going to take this Moabite woman and go sleep with her in front of all the leaders and all the people mourning. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through a belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel. What is Phineas a picture of? Well, first of all, Phineas is the next generation. What has the refining of the wilderness produced? It's produced this kind of zeal. And what does the zeal mean? It mean? This shows us what it means to care about the holiness of God. Zeal for God, Dr. Chow says, is when holiness wins and everything else is eradicated. We know that phrase from John Owen, be killing, um, kill sin or sin will be killing you, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Well, this is the picture we can have in our mind, <laughs> this impalement of these two people. You want to be zealous for God, you have to eradicate sin. There is no mercy, there is no partial, I'll be holy in this area of my life and not. It has to be eradicated. You'll be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And this zeal, God rewards with a covenant of peace and a perpetual priesthood. This is the zeal, this is the refining that God has done in the wilderness. And this brings us to chapter 27 and our second point, the second generation is a holy generation. And this is where we see the masterpiece, again, quoting Dr. Chow, I just couldn't say it better on my own. This is the masterpiece seen in the book of Numbers, that God can wipe out one generation to show his holiness while simultaneously raising up the next generation to be one of the holiest. We call the generation who fought World War II the greatest generation. This is one of the greatest generations. We're gonna see it in Joshua. God has raised up a holy generation that cares about him. We see it in Phineas. So we see, that, uh, we see a generation that cares about his agenda, about holiness, and this is the refining that the wilderness has accomplished. We see it in Phineas, and we see it in the tribe of Manasseh, in Zelophehad's daughters. If you're like, that's kind of a random little aside, the story about these daughters. You know, they, they don't, they don't, their dad doesn't have any sons, so they're afraid they're going to lose their inheritance. So they come and appeal and say, even though we're daughters, we should have land rights. They're not just caring about the land rights, they're caring about the Abrahamic covenant. Their parents said, I don't even want the land, and they're saying, please don't cut us out of our inheritance. We love the covenant, we love the promises, and we don't want to be cut out from that. And then the tribe of Manasseh comes and they say, all right, it's great that they're not gonna get cut out, but if they marry somebody, then our inheritance goes to a different tribe. If they marry someone from you know, Ephraim or tribe of Dan, well, we don't wanna lose our inheritance as a tribe either. They're not being greedy, they're not trying to have more land than the other tribe. They want what God has promised because they're caring about the covenant. So this says, marry within. This shows their zeal that their parents lacked for the things that God has promised. You know what else is just beautiful? Remember Korah? And the earth swallowed up Korah and Korah died? Remember, if you were in my small group, I read to you a psalm of the sons of who? 
psalm of the sons of Korah. Look in verse 11. But the sons of Korah did not die. How holy, what did they learn? What were they refined in the wilderness to learn? That while their dad rebelled and while their dad had 250 men with him, they separated themselves and were on the Lord's side. Even against family, they chose the Lord. And they write multiple psalms. I hope that as you go through them, if you read the psalms this year, that you remember the sons of Korah because they write the psalms that talk to us the most about trusting God, about, I wrote it all down in my notes and now I've lost my spot, about relying on God, trusting him, trusting his grace, and trusting his promises. Those are what the psalms of Korah are all about. And look where they're writing it from. Look at their history. They know what they're talking about. And then, don't you love chapter 31? They go get vengeance on Midian. But note verse 49. How many people die in battle? Remember how they were all crying? Our kids are going to die by the sword. No one died. No one died. Not one. And every time Israel fights in obedience to God, no one dies. God fights for Israel. That becomes the norm for Israel. So what is the application? There are so many times that the Bible refers to the wilderness. Jude, Hosea, 1 Corinthians, Hebrews, Isaiah. And what do they all teach us? What do they all refer back to the wilderness and say? That the application of the wilderness is that God is holy. And if you try and tempt God, if you oppose God, or if you disobey him, you will be judged. God is a holy God. He will judge this. But where is our hope? We already talked about it in John 3. We can't make ourselves holy. We saw it in, in Numbers 11. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Lord to change us and be holy. We will never do it on our own. But just like this nation had to be holy to go into the promised land, flip over to Revelation 21. He's talking about the new Jerusalem and the new temple and about all the nations. And in verse 24, it says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is true for Israel is true for us. The way back to Eden is holiness. The way into heaven is holiness. And the only way that we will be holy is through the Son, is through Jesus Christ. On Sunday night, if you were here, the team from Greece shared, and Nick Woods shared at the beginning that one of the things they learned in evangelism class is we all have a knowledge of holiness, I mean, of, of the word of God, and we all have a level of obedience, and there's always a gap. And that's sanctification. He said, in, the, in America, we tend to think, oh, I need to grow, so I need more knowledge. I'll go to a conference, I'll read a book, I'll, and we make the gap bigger. And he said, in other cultures, they tend to think, how do I obey more? The point of learning about this today is that we would be transformed to obey more. That we wouldn't just have more knowledge of the book of Numbers or how it fits into the big picture, though I want us to have that, but how will we be more holy? And I saved, I think sometimes holiness, it is weighty and it is fearful, but I saved the Abrahamic, the Aaronic, sorry, blessing for the end because in chapter 6, when God gives the blessing that Aaron's supposed to bless the people with, again, uh, the professor, sa professor Chow said that that, that whole blessing is supposed to show us the nature of what holiness brings. What is holiness supposed to accomplish? What is the nature of what holiness brings when we are holy? It brings a full relationship with the Lord. It brings peace with God and a right relationship with men. And that's what this verse, these verses say. And that's what I want to close us with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is the nature of what holiness brings. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for numbers. I thank you for all that you taught me in numbers and pray that as we leave, we wouldn't leave with more knowledge, but we'd leave with more obedience and more love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.